Hello, my lovely people. How are you today? I do hope you're good and be ready. I am so excited to bring this conversation to you. Welcome to Wait For It, my first listener episode. Now, if you're part of my mailing list, you'll know I sometimes ask if there is anyone you would like to hear from on the next chapter podcast. Abigail Rogers got in touch. Thank you, Abigail. And she said she wanted to know about being a surgeon, how someone decides to be one and what life is like. Well, I am lucky enough to know the incredible Char Rajakaruna. He spent his childhood in Sri Lanka during the Civil War and is now a heart surgeon in our city where we live in Bristol. Now, Char is far too humble and modest to say, so I'll tell you, but he is one of the most respected heart surgeons in the world. He is so dedicated and passionate about his work and he has saved and changed the lives of so many people. I knew he would be a fabulous Next Chapter guest. Char is such a generous and kind person and his conversation was even better than I could have imagined. Char speaks honestly about what life really is like for him and his lovely family and the importance of being surrounded by people you love who believe in what you do. Hello and welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to indie author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter or at the very least, You'll just enjoy the conversation. So here he is, Mr. Char Rajakaruna. Char Rajakaruna, welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. I am so thrilled and honoured to have you with me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm delighted I could join. Yes. And see, Char, this is very special because this is my first ever listener episode. So this is when a listener asked for me to speak to somebody. And so the listener, Abigail Rogers, wanted me to interview a surgeon. So thank you so much for stepping forward to the job. But you have um, an amazing story. So we're just going to get straight into it. So as ever, we start with your prologue. Now, you grew up in Sri Lanka, didn't you? I did. I was born in Sri Lanka and at the very tender age of two and a bit um, I was put on a plane and transported by an air stewardess, uh, me and my little sister, to um, England because my parents were in England by then with my dad doing his uh, specialist exams for him to be uh, an, an obstetrician and that's how we ended up in England the first time round. and then when he finished his qualifications and it was time to work he worked for a while in England and he had decided that he needed to look after his elderly parents and he decided to take his family back and so at the very tender age of seven we were back in Sri Lanka having almost started school and your first language being English um, and all of that um, so and then I was uh, went to school in Sri Lanka, um, struggled through sort of the first part of my school until there was a civil war in Sri Lanka in the 1980s, and it resulted in my parents moving me to an international school, which is where you learn everything in English. And as, as the medium of learning changed, I started to excel in my school life um, and my out outcomes were much better than they were in my native Sinhalese speaking uh, school. And that I put down to the fact that 
the first ever language I ever learnt and sort of related to people in was in English. Mm. Um, so off it went, and I I went from there to a British school, did my British exams. So there from then on, I was not eligible to do higher education in Sri Lanka, and uh, again exported out um, to a British university. Um, where I spent my undergraduate time in Leicester, and that's where it all started. Okay, right. So, Char, there's lot. <laughs> now we're going to go back a bit here because there's lot to get through here. So, where first of all were you in England when you were two? Where did you live in England then? We lived in Sutton Coalfield in Birmingham. Oh wow. Okay. So, my goodness. So you went from then Birmingham back to Sri Lanka when you were seven. So obviously you can remember that. I mean, what was that like for you to make such a jump at that at that age? Well, actually, I think. Um, uh, when you're um, doctors, kids, particularly where you you go from one hospital to the next in your training times, and I can tell you the story about my kids a little bit later, perhaps, if it's relevant, um, you tend not to be overwhelmed by moves too much, as long as you're with your family, I think. Um, so I, I don't remember it to be at all nerve-wracking. In fact, I can't remember anything apart from going my first day at school when I got back where I was plunged into what I would imagine for you would be like being sent to China to go to school yeah. and everything is in Chinese. Yeah. And that's how it was. I didn't really know much Sinhalese at that point. Um, and I had to sort of have a buddy in school. So it was, I don't remember it as a traumatic time at all. Um, mm. I just remember a, a happy start to school after a bit of a struggle with the language. I think that's all I recall. Mm. And you said you were, well, you described yourself, you said you were a nice kid. I'm sure you were. And you were outdoors all the time. And you say you were very easy for your parents. Were you really, Char? Were you really easy for your parents? Yes, I think, I suppose we always compare ourselves with our siblings and how much, uh, what the difference in management was with, with our siblings. So I have an older sister and in comparison, I felt that my parents had to do very much, very little to get me to do something. Therefore, I, th I felt that their energy was spent a lot with them. And I was a very compliant child. It didn't take much energy. I had sort of an inner drive of my own, which was basically good for my parents, I think, in the end, because they didn't really have to work very hard to make me work hard. Mm. They didn't leave to do anything to make me exercise because I would naturally go and play. Of course, we didn't have televisions or uh, computer games in Sri Lanka and when I was growing up mm. because the national TV wasn't a thing. The first thing I remember seeing on the television was um, the uh, Diana and Charles's wedding <laughs> when, when the television came out, you know. And so, well, I'm, yeah, so I was very outdoorsy and quite easygoing, uh, a very sort of passive child who wasn't, didn't, didn't particularly want for much. So it was quite a simple life. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, compared to uh, uh, two years ahead of me was a sister who had different demands. <laughs> um, I didn't really need any uh, hoodies or jumpers or anything. I was quite happy with my little shorts and T-shirts that we still had from England. So whereas my sister Sandy always liked to look good and was working hard on her appearances. So I think my parents had to work a little bit harder, but she was more intelligent uh, for sure more versatile in school so and that now shows in our late adulthood which we will get on to but so we're going back to when you were at school so did you did you soon pick up the language and were you so you were doing all your lessons essentially in a foreign language weren't you but did it soon become second nature to you so yes um i 
yes, I was plunged into a school where I didn't really know what people were saying. Um, I mean, obviously, the basics were a bit clear because it had been spoken in the house a bit. Singhalese is a is a very unique language. And uh, yeah, I had a school buddy assigned to me. So and he could speak a little bit of English, I think. That's how I recall the whole story. And, uh, you know, finding the toilet, finding the playground, going moving between classes. I had the buddy always with me and um, he turned into my bestie, of course, because he helped me through life in my early stages. Um, so, yeah, it was. But but I think when you're that young and you have this sort of mixed background of hearing, obviously, in my brain, there was single somewhere because it wouldn't have been easy to switch in so easily. It did just happen, I think, fairly quickly. Uh, and before you knew it, English was a second language for me. I, and I recall thinking that, going, we were trying to spell words that had five letters in them. You know, river, R-I-V-E-R, for example. Uh, you know, I remember that moment thinking, gosh, how far back I've fallen in the English language. You know, having mm. the only thing spoken then, and by the time you're eight years old, you're now struggling yeah. to do the other language so i don't know why it was but it's been taught in a different way as a second language by people who are experts in singalese as opposed to going to an english school being taught english as a higher education what did you speak at home english mostly right yeah okay. or singlish sometimes as we call it with okay. a little bit singlish with a bit of english english with a bit of singalese in it yeah like singlish like that um so at this so, so like you say so you i mean you worked hard at school didn't you you were quite happy to go to school you say you went to five different schools in total yes so that was all after that was all in sri lanka was it obviously yeah so i mean i, I was briefly in a school in england but only briefly because i hadn't quite started yet so that doesn't count it's probably more nursery in uh, in, in England um, and then I went to my primary school um, and then a secondary school for about uh, two years before um, the civil war came along and all the schools closed down and then I was sent to a different secondary school for GCSE which was then O levels um, and that was in a somebody's house that had been converted to run a stealth operation for education because in, during the Civil War, pe kids weren't allowed to go to school at that time. It was a very political thing. Um, but the parents who could and afford it and knew how to get your children there, we were dressed in plain clothes going to this other school. So that's third school. And then for sixth form, I moved city and went to uh, a British school in, in the main city, which is an international school run by all expats, um, and then moved um, to England for a year of introduction to sort of upper six, right. and that's where the exams happened. So that's, that's that was that five schools? Yeah, so that mm -hmm. was five schools just there. Okay. So, I mean, we're, gonna, so we're going into your first chapter here, because you're saying, you know, we're saying because you grew up in a, in a civil war, which obviously for you, I suppose, I mean, I can't imagine what that must have been like. Yeah, so it's not gunfire all the time and bombs going off elsewhere. We, we lived in privileged areas with our, you know, when your parents are medics, that sort of the kind of circles that you keep socially, the areas that you are tend not to be in the city centres. They tend to be sort of a little bit more affluent and therefore maybe to some extent that, that drew in some problems because of, the money that was around but from my perspective all it meant was that 
you know, your parents wouldn't quite go to work the same way. Um, they would, uh, you know, your schools don't function the same way. All the tra public transport and sporting occasions didn't happen the same way. And you'd see on the news that there was the odd, um, you know, military exercise that was going on and a bomb in a, in a marketplace. It's a sort of a very dumbed down version of Baghdad or something like that. I think it's it's a lot, lot it wasn't as everyday aggressive, but there were big problems in the country. It's just not in front of my eyes. I never really felt the brunt of it. But we had things like families that were belonged to certain ethnic groups that came and stayed in our houses for protection because our houses were protected because we were the majority Sinhalese Buddhist community. And the the, the war was a, a, a Sinhalese Tamil war, which is um, to do with the southern Indian population that migrated into the northern Sri Lanka and wanted a separate state. That was the background to it. And um, so, yeah, in the medical circles, in the educated circles, all of those things didn't matter. It only mattered that we were friends and colleagues with each other, and my house was often full of families. And that was actually quite a joyous time for us, mm. thinking back. So it was a militant time in the country, but as kids, you tend not to notice things unless a blast went off in front of you, which it never did. You never saw anything like that. I never saw anything. There were just multiple checkpoints. There were, you know, just day-to-day -day life was a little bit full of checks and military presence, um, which was the norm for us back then. Mm. Um, but there were no personal threats or encounters that made us feel unsafe. Okay. And now, but obviously you were, you said you had lots of days off school. Yes. So, I mean, that was a big disruption, obviously. And, you know, as kids, again, a bit like going back to our lockdown recently, you know, you'll reflect on it in a very similar way. You were just not, there wasn't a school open to go to. And there was no provision for us to be educated in any other way apart from trying to find some other private arrangement. And always the expectation that schools could open any time. But it made it less and less safe to go to school because the teachers couldn't go. This was the problem with adults and different militant factions. So, yeah, we just I think we just were at home playing, really. With, with no hope until there was some kind of arrangements made. Mm. But that's amazing. You say you went to a school that was someone's house. Yeah, so there's um, the head teacher, if you like to call them, you know, had, a, had an ambition of creating a, a school that, um, that would deliver another curriculum almost, uh, maybe IB sort of thing for the UK. You know, they wanted to bring British Council uh, some connection. So, yeah, it was her, her sort of very big house was converted, had been converted already into small classrooms. And she was running a pilot program by the time, but then the demand for it came. And then suddenly, next thing you know, she had house, you know, she had classes of each from kindergarten upwards. Right. Um, but obviously, it was it was mainly secondary school that was running in the time I was there. I'm sure it exploded into something much bigger afterwards. In fact, I know it did. And uh, really oddly, it was called Ecole International. Mm. Um, I used French for school, and I didn't have any French connection at all. I think it was just plucked out of the sky as a name. That sounded good, really. But yeah, she, so there was it was a fee paying school right. that was going. It was under the radar, not registered, private. And, uh, you know, I remember being there was no uniform. That was very important not to have a uniform. We had to be dropped off discreetly as kids. 
at the bottom of some some road that you'd walk up and attend the school wow. and that's where I did my GCSEs or O levels at that time okay goodness me and so obviously you you say you enjoyed um you were very happy to go to school and you were always in the top set now both your parents say are doctors what doctors were they no my dad was a, a doctor my mum was a teacher okay um so my dad was a um an obstetrician mainly and a gynecologist it comes together that two the two specialists but his his thing was fertility I was a fertility expert um, and we had a very busy practice my mother was more um, a teacher at kindergarten level um, but unfortunately it didn't work a huge amount because follow, of following your um, husband around trying to get him to the to the various stages of his career and that that's very normal i think in in medical families where the medic doesn't come out of university become a doctor it then goes through many many layers of qualifications that each one in sometimes involves moving mm. so but the well we we'll come on to that but you so at this stage you thought maybe you you weren't necessarily planning to go into medicine you thought perhaps engineering you were looking at something like that so yes, uh, I think when you grow up in a medical family, the 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 one of the main things that happen is that they work hard to discourage you to do medicine because of the <laughs> you know because if your mother was like my mother constantly at home without her husband and you know having to look after the two kids and whatever else that came with it uh, and and the husband was out you know getting another qualification almost and then working on top. Um, it wasn't something that they would promote as a a way of making money. It was a passion, and so that that's what it's always been, I think. And so, if you don't have the passion and you happen to do medicine, you're you're in it for the wrong reasons. And because you you know, for the amount of time you put in per unit time, the amount of remuneration that you have in any field of medicine up to now is pretty poor. So if you wanted to make money, and that's the reason you went and got a job, job satisfaction and being good at something, medicine was not what you would choose to do. And my parents pointed me in the direction of computers quite early, but I had a very different idea and I wanted to do engineering because I was good at mechanical things. I could un- I could take things apart and put it together. I got involved in car mechanics a little bit. So I, I, I've, have, I've got this sort of ability to problem solve a mechanical or a structural problem um, rather than electronic problem. So that was my drive thinking, well, look, and in, in Asian countries and Asian civilizations, so I think they sort of do the doctor, the lawyer, you know, all of those sort of top jobs seem to be the ones that they want to send you towards. Um, and engineering, yeah, it's a degree, but it wasn't really one of the top two. And so it was an odd thing to want to do. But that was my natural tendency. Okay. Um, and that's why. So my mother would tell me, never become a doctor. <laughs> um, and my dad would go, look, you just need to look at things that aren't this hard to do unless you had a passion for it. And so that was what I was grooming myself to be. Okay. Well, that worked out. <laughs> that worked out very well. But um, so let's just, so going on it. So, so you say you spent a year, you, did you spend a whole year here in your sixth form in England? Yeah. Uh, that was straight into university. It's a sort mm-hmm. of a pre-university step that you do to integrate back into the sort of educational world when you're when you're destined for, you know, if you've been in the English system, the UK system for a while, even in a foreign country, as in, in Sri Lanka, then as you come in, you, you have this sort of year of acclimatization. So it's like a redoing your sixth form. 
without the exam, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. it, it, so that, that's all it was. It was just a softening up year. Okay. And then you applied to go to Leicester. Yes, I had already been accepted okay. to Leicester when I was coming over. So yeah, so the Leicester University was the place to be. Okay. And were you doing medicine, obviously, at Leicester? Yeah. So how then did you decide decide to go from engineering to medicine? What's changed? So it's um, one one thing is it's it's all about your my my A level times really. Um, it, we, we, after GCSE or O levels, um, you have to choose, don't you, what exams you're going to take for your A levels. And I was terribly undecided on how to get the engineering thing done. Didn't really have anybody to ask. A career advice is not there at that time. So what I chose to do instead of doing three subjects for A levels, I decided to do four, and Double maths, physics, chemistry, biology. Wow. That's, that, yeah, so that's the combination that I wanted to do. I wanted to do, And the reason I did that is because it's mainly, I think, engineering, but it gave me the fallback option of knowing what I knew how to do very well, which was potentially being a doctor because it's in the background all your life. Everybody you know is one of them. That is sort of the whole world of doctoring is it comes secondary, second nature to us. Even my sister, who's not a doctor now, I think that it, she understands the doctor world quite easily. So it was more sort of having a backup plan than anything else. Um, but as I went through the year or two of sixth form, and I was getting closer to crunch point, um, it, it was like one of these no-brainer moments that just turned up. I had no real way. I couldn't see myself doing engineering anymore. I couldn't see the practical steps towards it, but I could see the practical steps quite easily without any advice on how to become a doctor. And that was literally it. And I just applied for medicine because I knew how to apply for medicine. I knew I had a better chance. I did really well at my A-levels. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was just one of those comfort moments where that's looked really easy and the other one looked really hard suddenly um and i you know i haven't looked back on that decision and gone oh that was wrong i just haven't no um, but what did your mum and dad say well they're extremely supportive and secretly proud of me i think at the time <laughs> even I, I think what 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 it was it was uh, it was it was they were playing reverse psychology at that point I think they, you know, pre 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 that point. I think what they were trying to do is to discourage me to do what they wanted me to do. Right. Yeah. So I think actually, in secret, my dad wanted one of his kids to be a doctor, really, because it's the vocation that he would promote. And my mum was very proud of, you know, the things that my dad had achieved and any other doctors she knew in that time. So I think, you know, they never looked back. Mm -hmm. um from that moment and you know it's 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 when we i remember getting accepted to medical school and i was off with uh, some friends in a car in my mum's car driving and my dad was going the opposite way he blocked the road to stop and celebrate in the middle of the road when he'd got the result before i did so it was a big thing for him very emotional yeah absolutely and you know how because obviously then that did ignite a passion didn't it you know you were saying that you need to have the passion for medicine and you could it it, it i mean what a tactic your mum mum and dad did there but i mean it, it it worked it absolutely worked so so you went so you came to leicester so obviously at this stage you're doing general medicine and so you didn't know at this stage you wanted to be a heart surgeon 
No, not at all. Um, so I don't think I ever got into it with any idea of what I might be doing. I think all I said at the interviews was, you know, it's a caring thing. I needed to do something technical, perhaps, um, you know, in keeping with that engineering thought somewhere in my head. Um, I, I don't really know. I, I didn't have any direction other than I was going to become a medic. So it was general, you know, the first three years of medical school are pretty generic. You know, you're, you're going through, you're, you're with sort of, you know, combination of dentists and doctors, wannabes, vets on the other side. You know, you're learning the basics of the human and everything else that's attached to physiology, all that. So having done the A-levels that we did, which are pretty advanced really in Sri Lanka compared to the British ones at the time, I, I you know, the first year was a, just a complete breeze, actually, because mm -hmm. it had done all of that work already. So, yeah, you don't get to anywhere near specialization in that time. In, in the 90s in the medical schools, I, I don't think people were, you know, specializing early or, or having thoughts about that. There weren't many in my year of 112 or so people who knew what they were going to do. The GPs knew what they were going to do. Mm. I think they arrived with the thought and, and Leicester University was somewhat labeled a GP factory. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 I know at that point, I didn't really know I was going to become a surgeon or a heart surgeon for that matter. No. But did you enjoy it? Did you take to it just straight away? You thought this is exactly what I should be doing just in those early days? So um, what happens is when you graduate from med school, for those who haven't got a clue what they want to do, other than I'm a doctor now, what shall I do? You go through the mandatory house officer jobs, which is now called the pre-registration um, F1 foundation year one. It used to be called a houseman. And that's your year where you are essentially the dog's body on any ward, doing all the jobs, writing in all the notes and not making any of the decisions. Yeah. And so you mandatorily had to go through six months of general medicine, looking after patients who were ill in some way without any procedural work. And then you'd go and work in a surgical ward in another hospital or the same hospital as part of your rotation that was allocated to you. And you'd work on one or the other. And I, I did general medicine um, and I did a lot of cardiology, heart related things. Um, and occasionally bumped into interventional people who were doing stuff in her heart with heart. So you take a patient for a heart operation as a heart medic, but you weren't the person doing it or looking after them afterwards. You were referring them on. So I came across this group quite early, but do, the surgical side, I was easily, I was gravitating into very easily because it was technical. There was something about me that was very technical. I didn't quite recognize it till I look back now, but it was obvious that I was better at one than the other. And without even thinking about it now, if I tell you that my final results from university, I got merits and distinctions for all the surgical modules and passed all the rest. Right. That basically tells you that there was already a gravitation that way, but I didn't really know I had done that. Mm. It was just in the results. It was just, just naturally, so that was what you were, where you were destined to be. Well, before we get on to that, go, just going back, Char, what was that like when you, having sort of spent a long time in Sri Lanka and then you came here to Leicester, you know, you're studying here. Did you, did, was that hard? Was that hard for you or did you enjoy that? I think it was okay to, the transition, you know, you, you're, you're an adult, but not really, 17, 18, uh, coming over and spending time. I had a couple of friends who who, who transitioned with me from the same school because it was a British school that was sending people to England, basically. Um, 
and various universities. So we had company, um, but then, you know, you move into halls of residence, you, you have your community, and before you know it, it's sort of, again, like that first episode in Sri Lanka where it wasn't very hard. I didn't really find, I don't remember thinking, oh, God, I miss all of those people, or, you know, I, I really didn't. I just took to it like duck to water, just uh, it was a new chapter. Mm. Um, and I didn't find it particularly difficult, but there were some things to overcome. You know, I couldn't cook. It's obvious <laughs> things like that that <laughs> many kids go through, I think, when they get to university as opposed to a but the country change and the language wasn't different because I was already back in English anyway. Um, I, I was predominantly with sort of English-speaking people or expat people in the school in in a, in a funny environment. So I think I'd already sort of transitioned. I don't don't remember any massive days when I was down thinking I wish I, this didn't happen. Mm. Um, it was all pretty positive. I was already into university life. It was fantastic, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, I can imagine you enjoying uh, the social side of things. Haven't really, haven't really lived very long at home since. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, obviously it went well. And I, I should just say here, and I'm so sorry to talk about such a, a sad subject, but in your second year, your dad died very suddenly. Yes. Yes. So I think that I think was an important downside, which I, I had in my mind to say, if there was a difficult period, that might have been it. Mm. And, you know, he was suddenly ill. He, he was a, a professional at his peak in the ages of middle of he's a 52. You know, doctors in technical specialties are at their best within your first half of your 50s. And he really was at the top of his game. Um, and to suddenly sort of lose all of it um, very quickly for him was a massive frustration. And therefore, and he suddenly sort of deteriorated and died over one sort of Christmas period, if, if that makes sense. Um, so we knew he was ill, but we didn't know he was that ill. And it involved me leaving England to go see him. And he was then ill to the point where he looked like he might die, but didn't know how long he'd be. So then I came back to start my term and about five days into that, he died. So mm -hmm. I went back for his funeral. And um, that, that, that was quite hard because, you know, you're about to miss, there was a lot of stuff happening in Sri Lanka that was unsettling. Um, you know, my, my dad was a big, part of a big tall pyramid just right at the top you know a lot of things collapsed underneath um a lot of things hadn't been sorted out there were financial implications a lot of things that were headaches for my family um that made it quite difficult to make progress in the terms afterwards so i was a little bit wobbly i'd say mm -hmm. with my education when i got back nevertheless i came back fairly soon afterwards a couple of weeks maybe and then got on with my my single life in university um mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think you ever prepared for things like that, no matter what age it happens at. But it, it still remains a massive problem, mm. um, you know, because it's something that you think if I go back to that time when my dad stopped me on the street to celebrate me getting into medical school, he never really saw the finished product. Mm. He didn't even know if I made it. I'm sure he does. But I'm, no, I'm sure he had no doubt I would make it. Mm. because of the track record I had as because I'm I'm sure I told you earlier I was an easy child so I was going to make it yeah. there wasn't going to be a huge amount of resistance made by myself to detriment myself so apart from the grief of that I think 
it only just makes you a bit stronger perhaps to succeed in things that you set out to do um so yeah that was a difficult time for about six months but i'm i think i'm quite a resilient person generally uh, naturally a bit like these moves between countries that don't affect you there mm-hmm. is something about it that doesn't um affect you as much as it should pro- probably but it's a uh, the slow burner is almost hard than the big fall i think mm. is what what you and so every time you have a massive achievement you think back to that day and you go oh, i wish you know and yeah. that's that's the problem yeah um, but it didn't affect my education really it didn't affect the way i was who i was it didn't make me bitter in any way it was it was one of those things that i accepted fairly soon as a and i, I think maybe it was easier for me as a medic who was who knew the process mm. of what he was going through it was literally a thunderbolt from the past and it was just uh and i wasn't living at home i wasn't massively reliant on these individuals you know at home mm. i just had a relationship with them mm. that was historic and going to be future in different ways so that i think was a big big low mm. um that never really um it didn't derail me massively mm. i don't think but you know it remains a continuous problem for mm. the rest of your life i think mm, of course it does i i'm a big believer that i'm sure he does know what you're doing i'm 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 sure you know that's a whole different subject but also you know for for you the fact that you i know how much your dad meant to you and you admired him so much so i suppose it, he was always going to sort of live on in in all the work that you do because you're so influenced by him and still are i suppose Yes, yes. I think um it's not just the medicine, it's not just the passion. It's more the community so the community um uh, things uh, contributions that you make as a sort of a respected wider member of the society, you know, they look to you for to more than just medicine when you're responsible to that level and that's the kind of thing that my dad had in spades and I thought I should do too. Um apart from I think I'm a better medic than him for sure 100%. I've chosen something far more superior than than that although you know he made a lot of people very very happy um you know when they delivered their babies for people who couldn't have mm. babies I mean we've got multiple families named after us his kid <laughs> in Sri Lanka um you know because they never thought that they could but equally he thought he was a surgeon when he really wasn't um and that banter would have continued for the rest of our life imagine mm. Mm. Um, so I never got a chance to do that either. Mm. But yeah, well, he'd be so proud of you because you did go on to become a heart surgeon, Charles. So um, you say, now I did have to laugh at this, that you came to Bristol. This is how you fell in love with um, Bristol because you also, not only were you so inspired by the work here, but there were also um, very lovely ladies in Bristol, which I thought, I mean, why I mean, why would you ever want to leave? Exactly. Um <laughs> the tongue in cheek a little bit um <laughs> of course uh it's a very pretty part of the country isn't it and if you live in a place like leicester with all due respect to everyone who lives there you know architecturally it it's a bit of a dump and uh, you know the only thing you could admire there is 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 the railway station um and all the houses you lived in were terrible housing and you know outside was slightly bigger new bills there's a lot of countryside nearby the peak district whatever else peterborough that direction but when you come to a place like bristol it's just got it just looks like it's historic mm. you know the minute you drive through it and then you find all these different flavors to it and you know the worst looking building probably is the bristol royal infirmary in the entire entire city but mm. 
there's so much going for it, isn't it? It's it's, it's all packed, and 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 there are some yeah, there were some very pretty ladies. I remember uh, thinking that's a big attraction, but it was a sort of a you know I'd finished my chapter in 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 Leicester. I'd lived there for almost nine years. And I had to choose my next job. And I, in, in what we do in medicine is that when you choose to do surgery, you do a junior rotation in surgery, which involves a number of specialities. And my rotation that had been given to me, or the one I won in Leicester and its region, didn't contain cardiothoracic surgery, which is heart and lung surgery. So what I knew up to that point was that I wanted to be some kind of a blood vessel surgeon so it's a, it's a vascular surgeon is is what i was going to be because i had been influenced heavily by the leicester vascular surgical department and i thought that's what i wanted to major in one day but i hadn't had the flavor of cardiac surgery i knew what it was but i didn't really hadn't been involved in it seen it you don't get to do it as a medical school student as well because it's not that accessible so it's a very fringe speciality and so when I saw the job advertised in Bristol and it was time for me to move on for various reasons from Leicester, I looked to a complete change and I decided to have a new specialty. It was my last six months of doing the junior rotation and I had six months to nail these exams that will take me from doctor to mister, the membership of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. And so all of that had to be done on arrival in Bristol and Bristol just offered me this perfect platform to do that. Um, and uh, you know, got to Bristol, I started the job, and within about six to eight weeks of doing the job, helping the senior surgeons operate and you know, facilitating all the care, the research that went along with it, Bristol was very wealthy in research, had a good setup, and I felt that this was the right thing for me. It was better than vascular surgery because it was clean vascular surgery. You know, I wasn't going to be chopping off diabetic legs. I was going to be, although that's a very good job to do, um, it wasn't this was better you know this was this was this had a lot more high stakes in it it was very much on the edge um yeah the the surgery was a lot more complex and it, technically it was a lot more challenging and i felt that that's something i would have read it was me it's mechanical engineering for you again within medicine <laughs> yeah. you know i think it just all came back and i knew this is it i just have to find a way so that's how I decided. And I thought Bristol was the perfect place because it's a fresh start. And I impressed upon them. And then next thing I know, I was I was doing full-time research and planning towards my next level, which is entry into the specialist training program right. in cardiothoracic surgery, which is another story okay. from there. Okay. And, and I should just say then as well to bring in that you did meet a very going back to the ladies you did meet a very pretty gorgeous lady kate here in bristol who then became mm. your wife so was this um at this stage is at, at what stage did you meet kate because obviously we talk about you know like you were saying what it is like to be a doctor's wife and this is a big part of your life but where did you when did you meet kate were you already involved with the heart side of things then yes first day on the job <laughs> Um, first day on the job, walked in and walked into this ward and Kate was a very junior nurse on this ward. And I wasn't necessarily going to work on that ward, but that's where we reported to. And, you know, so it, it was, I mean, I, I don't remember thinking, okay, well, look, uh, and she definitely doesn't, you know, but it was, I remember meeting her um, at that stage. And then, you know, many, many months, maybe a year later almost, um, our paths crossed again 
and um, we started going out. Um, so our first night out, in fact, was the day I'd passed, found out that I passed my exams and I was now officially a mister. Right, amazing. And yeah, so um, Ashton caught uh, ball um, and yeah, the rest is history. And how old were you then, Charles? Um, I think I might have been about 27 years old, 27, 28. That still sounds quite bit, young to me. Yeah, maybe a bit younger. Yeah. So, so then, so, I mean, again, forgive my ignorance, um, but sort of to explain as well to everyone listening. So the work that you do, I mean, obviously you've gone on. So, you know, I know you're not going to say it, but for my lovely listeners, you know, you're, you're kind of as high up as you can get there you know the, and and bristol is such a institution for her it's like a world-renowned place so how did you get to there then from that day when you became a mister how did you get to where you are now um okay so you have to um uh, an aspiring heart or lung surgeon has to get onto this rotation that does heart and lung only and it has to go through several hospitals if possible and there were the biggest problem for me at the time was when I finished and I was eligible to the rotation in the UK, there are there were a fixed number of training slots in the country. So you can always call, we used to call them prisoner numbers. There were a fixed number of slots in the country and one had to graduate or die for somebody else to get one. Uh, and every year there will be a number of graduates and then go out to competition and then you get it. But unfortunately, in when I first became eligible to it, I was not able, the, the training program was closed down completely with no recruitment for two years because they had, they thought, the UK government thought they had too many heart surgeons and they needed to create more surgeons called cardiologists who did the stents for the hearts because that was the new technology out. So I spent two years um, in a job. So I then had to go from Bristol to London, where they offered a job, particular job where if I did it for a while and I managed to get onto the training program afterwards, they would recognize the time as training. So I went from Bristol as my first year registrar. This is called registrar training now. So you go from a houseman to your junior membership, which is your senior house officer or the SHO level. And then you jump onto the registrar rung. And when you get on the registrar rung, then you're in training. That is proper focus training. Now you're destined to become something because you've got one of these numbers and I didn't have one. So, but I went and did a job where I thought I could springboard from there. So I went to King's College Hospital in London um, where Kate and I moved together. And then we moved a second year to Brighton um, where we had our first, our first son. And so I was in my second year pretending to be a heart surgeon, trainee, not really sure getting the training program. And then suddenly the training program opened because they'd realized that that was a miscalculation. They needed more heart surgeons and five spots opened up in the country. Wow. And I went for national competition and I, I vowed to myself that if I didn't, by that time, I was so sick of medicine. I was thinking of getting a job. Well, look, I'm back to gold one one, making as much money and being satisfied as possible. <laughs> and let this is not satisfying me anymore unless I got to do it properly. So I shall give it one more go to get that number. And this was it, this one time. And if it worked out, it worked out. If it didn't, 
I'm out and I was going to become a ed- medical advisor to a drug company or something. I was going to go transferable skills, recruitment company, something innovative that medics don't know how to do outside. So we didn't really know what to do, but I knew there was something else I could have done. I did not want to become anything other than a heart surgeon mm-hmm. at that point. And this is after you've had a child and, you know, your your destiny is not certain and you do need money at that point, don't you? Um, so... I was lucky or I, or I worked quite hard and I was good, one of the two or a bit of both. And I got one of the five spots in the country. Wow. And, and you were also not allowed to choose where you go. So you rank you what you want to do, where you want to do it. And I ranked Bristol as top and uh, of my choices. And there was one in Bristol. Um, and there were three up north. And my wife would have refused to go there. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, and then there was one in on in Papworth, which was in Cambridge. So I ranked those two, one and two, and I got my number one choice. Amazing. And, and before you knew it, you're back in Bristol. And then I got my prisoner number. <laughs> and so the story behind that is my mother was really concerned that I was going to not be a doctor anymore, having sort of achieved so much with me as far as she was concerned, that I was going to dump that whole thing and go and do, you know, become a medical advisor to a medical pharmaceutical company to make lots of money and advise on trials. So it was as a big reward um, when I when I got that prisoner number, my mum gave me five grand towards the deposit towards a car, wow. and with that I bought uh, or my wife bought a a Z4 coupe BMW, <laughs> yeah. which I still drive yeah, yes, to this you day. Do. I didn't which was the reward that. from my mother wow. for staying in medicine, oh. and she didn't care what kind of medicine I did. She she does now. But at the time, she just wanted me to remain in as, as a doctor and making that contribution. So, yeah, that's how I got back to Bristol. And then we all moved. We went to Plymouth because that was the part. Next move was to Plymouth for two years in Plymouth, where I did two further years of training there. Then back to Bristol for the last year of training. And then traditionally, if you want to get a job where you want it, when you want it, you've got to do what's called a fellowship beyond that. So we as a family went to the United States. We went to Yale University, which is well known for major aortic surgery. It's a sort of a a flagship center. And I got a fellowship there. And I spent a year there with a very famous professor who educated me in a sort of another level. Um, I I did things far more frequently than I would have done in in England. And before you know it, I I had a, a pretty good CV and I came straight back from the United States back to Bristol to finish my last month of um, my prisoner number. You have six solid years to finish that all in and if you don't you're out. So uh, I had to finish my last month and Bristol just happened to have a a temporary vacancy called a locum job and um, they they put me into that locum job saying do this for a while till you find a real job. Um, and then I went for full competition when the job came up and, uh, yeah, I was employed. Uh, they snatched me up again, having realized that I was good for it. So yeah. they needed succession planning, needed someone like me who had my background of training and, uh, I guess, um, perseverance. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I became a senior lecturer at the university. And so back to the start again. My goodness. And, and I chose to live in Bristol. How old were you then? Um, I think I was 38 wow. when I was 37 when I was appointed as a temporary. I'm 38 when I got my permanent job. So that tells you 
how long it takes to specialize mm. without wasting a huge amount of time in heart surgery. Um, so I think it's approximately 15 years since graduation mm. from university. And can I just ask you, when you say prisoner number, what does that mean? So there's a finite number of training spaces in the country for heart and lung surgery. And each one of them is numbered, called the national training number. Right. And like prisons can only hold a certain number of prisoners. <laughs> yeah, you can't over congest the prison. You can over congest the hospital, but you cannot put more people in cells. It's a fixed number. So all prisons have prisoner numbers and one prisoner has to leave before a new one can come into a full prison. Mm. It's very similar for heart and lung surgery. You had a fixed number of training slots in the country, in the UK, and one of them had to graduate or die for you to get liberated one and then given a prisoner number. So the national training number was well known as a prisoner number within our circles because it's it's a prison sentence. You're in. Once you're, you're in, in, you can't get out. No. And there's not a lot you can do after that. Oh, goodness me. But Charles, so to explain, I mean, I, I know I hear some stories about the work that you do now, but what is your kind of speciality sort of in layman terms to for, for the lovely listeners to understand? So um, heart surgery... Um, involves fundamentally five or six major heart operations. There are things that can go wrong with the heart for either reasons that you're born with them, abnormalities, or you're, you, you, you acquire them because of various environmental, family, lifestyle reasons. The commonest problem that people have is um, coronary artery disease, which is blockages of their arteries that pump blood to the heart, which then results in a heart attack if it's not treated at appropriate time. The majority of them get treated with medicine, some of them with stents, a small number of them, and a really small number of them are eligible for a coronary artery bypass operation. And that is the sort of bread and butter heart operation that most heart surgeons would do. And then there are valves inside the heart that ensure blood travels from one chamber to the other without leaking backwards. So it opens when it wants to go forward, but doesn't leak when it goes backwards. And those are one-way return valves, and the heart has four of them. And so two of them, notoriously the aortic valve and the mitral valve, which are high pumping chamber valves can get diseased as a part of a congenital thing. So you're born with an abnormal valve that just wears out um, or leaks or, or you get some degenerative condition because you're getting older and it just works too much and becomes malfunctioning and it causes heart failure. So if you detect that early, you can do heart valve replacements, which is an aortic valve replacement or a mechanical mitral valve replacement. So whichever one to correct that valve, you have to remove the valve and put a new one, which is actually open heart surgery. So you've got to split the breastbone or go through some side of the chest, then stop the heart using the heart-lung machine, which is our go-to tool. And while the heart-lung machine does all the work for the rest of the body, looking after the brain, the gut, the liver, the spine, the legs, everywhere else is perfused or getting blood apart from the heart at that point. And then you're able to stop the heart safely and open the heart up, inspect the valves, remove the ones that you are dysfunctional and replace them with others. Then close the heart up, bring blood back to the heart by disconnecting the heart-lung machine. And next thing you know, the heart's back again and it's enjoying it because it, the blood, it's not leaking anymore or blood, there's no narrowing of heart valves for, for, for it to suffer with. So they are very malignant conditions, as in they're not cancer, but they kill within two years if not treated. And mm -hmm. so that's the sort of two big areas of heart surgery, coronary artery bypass grafting, 
which takes pipes from your own body, veins from the leg and arteries from behind the breastbone and does intricate bypass to the heart blood vessels. So taking blood beyond the blockages, you literally sew in blood vessels to blood vessels, which are about two millimeters wide. We do a combination of the two. A step up from that is aneurysm surgery, which is the major aorta that comes out of the heart. So the big blood vessel that pumps blood all the way around the body can become split or enlarged. They're called aneurysms. So when a blood vessel is twice as the size of its normal size, it weakens and therefore can rupture and you can die from it. And so we know that from historical trials and natural history of these things. So we monitor or detect these patients who get found. And my specialist area of the interest is aneurysm surgery of the heart. Although I do the other two things quite a lot, this is my special thing. And that is what I learned to do in America. That is what I graduated in. That's now I'm creating a program in Bristol to make it better than it used to be. There was one surgeon in Bristol who could do that in the past to, to half its intensity. And now we've really taken it up another level in the last sort of seven years or so. And now I've got another surgeon who's trained very similar to me five years behind. So we're going to nurture him to the same level. So it's all about you know, creating that service in, in and around the Southwest for the 3 million population plus summer whales and so on. So the next step up in heart surgery, which I'll just briefly mention is transplant surgery, which is not in Bristol. We don't, we don't specialize as a transplant unit. So we don't have transplantation. And that's where I drew the line between sane and insane surgeons. Uh, I think only the insane surgeons would want to do transplant, even though it's very rewarding. It was always at night, always at the weekend. Most of heart surgery emergencies seem to be that way, but that's more frequent. Um, but my interest was aortic surgery, and that's what we're doing now in Bristol. Well, thank goodness you are. I mean, it's just amazing. Just, I'm going to ask you this now, Char. Do you remember the very first time, we're going back to when you were a medical student, and the very first time, which I know this is a ridiculous question, but I do often think of this, you know, that first time that you have to cut somebody, you know, but for somebody who would never do it as a non-surgeon person, it's second nature to you now. But it seems one of the most horrendous things you have to do. Or, you know, what does that feel like that first time? So um, some of us look forward to that moment um, of doing any of the technical tasks that we've learned to do. Um, but don't forget that we have been trained to stand there for hours and assist people or watch it from a distance. It starts very subtle, you know, as a medical student, you're watching it and you're slowly there, you can feel the smells, you can see the sights, and you're slowly brought beyond that sort of normal world into the point where you're actually doing it. So you spend years watching people doing it, helping people doing it, getting to touch that part of the body before you make the incision, sewing it up before you cut it for the first time. You know, all of those steps had been done before. And then also, you know, in my time, I mean, there was a lot of simulation. So, you know, you'd you'd learn how to hold the scalpel. There was a basic surgical skills course. So I think the first operation I did was an appendectomy, you know, to removing an appendix from some young young person who was ill at the time or a hernia repair or one very close somewhere in abdominal surgery. And it's all you've been waiting to do at that point. You know, it was absolute a hurrah moment going, that is me now being a surgeon because I've now started to finally 
cut. Mm. And so, you know, if there was a number plate at that point, I'd go for char to cut. <laughs> so it was an absolute massive achievement. You know, mm. I just remember it wasn't, it was just the perfect moment. We've graduated. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And now, I mean, obviously, and this is the thing that I always find fascinating as well. Obviously, you're doing this at a day in, day, you know, this is this is your job. But when you're dealing with patients of all different ages, you know, I know you deal with sort of young people up to sort of much older people, but this is probably the biggest thing that's ever happened to them and the most frightening thing, and they're coming to you. You know, how do you how do you kind of deal with that every day and also you know help them as well yeah i i think it's it's quite difficult to um in our profession to continuously feel what the patients feel but then not feel it sometimes so you have to it's it's in stages basically um so the way i see it anyway it it's always this is routine for me it's the only time that they're ever going to have it done. That's how I see it, whether it's an emergency or not. So imparting, um, communicating, imparting the knowledge, the experience that they might be going through is quite important to me because I can cause a complication that would be really much worse than what they came in with at times. So that's one way of thinking about it. The other is that I could make a massive difference if I didn't if I didn't do it, I think they're going to end up with worse than the complication is how I sort of reconcile myself in those sort of momentary times. So I always give my first consultation quite a lot of time. I'm, I'm allotted 15 minutes to have a chat with the patient as an outpatient clinic to explain to you that you're about to have a heart operation. It's already been diagnosed. The thing about my specialty is it's served up on a plate. A lot of people have done a lot of work in the background, got ready, they found the problem, they've diagnosed the problem, it's severe, it reaches the criteria almost for, for having a heart operation and then they produce it to you. And 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 so from my, from my experience, it's about imparting that conversation, taking it from there to the next level with the patient. And my clinics, I don't think any clinic overruns more than mine because I talk too much as you kind of worked out now. Um, <laughs> You know, you give me a go and I'll keep going. And <laughs> it's really about making sure that A, I explain the, 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 the condition. I always start with what happens if you don't have it done. What does it mean to live on with a, you know, irreversible heart condition sometimes? What do the statistics say? And what could happen if you did have it done and what the experience would look like from my perspective? And I always sort of put it like if I was going through it, or if it was my father going through it, depending on, or my grandfather, depending on the age of the patient, as you say, there's a variety. It's just trying to get get across. And I think um, to, the difference is that it's not every day for them. It's the one-off. So you have to really go at it like that. And so I go at it with a lot of compassion. And doing the operation is the easiest bit out of that whole experience for the patient. It is the bit that they think about the most. But for us, it's like the, it, for me as a as a as a trainer, as a person who sees the patients and training other surgeons. Now, the best bit, it, the biggest bit, is the communication mm. of what the experience might be, and what is the point of doing it, mm. uh, and how they're going to look like afterwards, and not to celebrate until a lot of time has gone by and you're absolutely certain it's worked for a long time. That's that's when you really become satisfied with that situation. 
And that's what it takes, I think. Mm-hmm. What is that feeling like when you know? I mean, I know, you know, you've saved people. I have heard the stories where people, uh, young, again, younger people as well, you know, you get called. And again, I mean, we will talk about this, but what, with your lovely wife, Kate, you know, this is a big thing for your whole family, isn't it? You're called in the middle of the night and you go. You can't just sort of switch off. You're going to go. But then you you save someone's life. I mean, that person is would have died and you have saved them and then you see them a few months later and they're looking very well. I mean, what is that feeling like for you when you see that person? So, uh, first of all, it's always relief that you've pulled it off again because you know about all the bad things that can happen more than the patient does. And so that's the first thing that comes to mind. And then then you start to sort of ask them, explore about their quality of life and symptoms being there or not, not just being alive, being able to go around, drive, ride their bicycle, all the practicalities. You know, it just is a massive achievement, I think, sometimes. And you're overwhelmed about how we are able to do that. Um, and it does is the next motivator for the next day. So that's the whole point is that, you know, when you, okay, a failure takes you a long way back, but the triumphs as they come along and then thankfully there are a lot more positives than there are negatives. It does generally make it all worthwhile. And when you come home and you tell Kate about it, of course, Kate has some insight into it. Um, and, and so does, does do my children now. Uh, and then you can talk to your mum on a Sunday and tell them about this sort of 38-year-old lady with something. You know, you'd go on about some story to them. Naturally, that's what I tend to do. I seem to be living it all the time. And so it is just a way of life. And as my mum told Kate before we got married, are you sure this is something you want to get into? Because it's just he's never going to be there as he, her husband wasn't there. I think she knew that that's the kind of lifestyle that we will live. But the question was, you know, I think it's 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 worth it for everybody in my family. It's a contribution from everybody to that person, isn't it? And that's mm. what I think they feel quite good about it. Yeah, it's very special, child. Do you? What's the longest operation you've ever done? Um, I think it probably is about 14 hours. These wow. aneurysm operations can go on for quite some time, uh, especially when they present as emergencies. Um, and the critical thing, the coolest thing I would say about my job <laughs> is I, I and, and not many heart surgeons would say this, <laughs> I have, um, I have um, a heart lung machine that I can use, as I've alluded to, everybody uses it. But we have the ability with that heart lung machine in a very special way to cool patients down their body temperature from 37 degrees down to 19 let's say 25 degrees so quite cold where your body functions cease to happen anymore and you can go into suspended animation and a bit like turning the radiators off in the house in order to repair the system you're able to stop the blood flowing around the body completely for a good amount of time for you to conduct an operation on all the pipes and restart so you can detach the blood vessels of the brain, for example, and reattach them all back without any blood flowing through them at the time. And that's called deep hypothermic circulatory arrest or moderate hypothermic circulatory arrest, which is arresting the circulation in hypothermia, so cold. And that's very protective. Um, And so that is something in my specialty within my focus of the aorta i use quite frequently it can be quite damaging if you don't use it the right way so having a team of people who can successfully carry that out over and over and over again 
uh, with the results we get, I think is a massive achievement for us. And we use that technique to save a lot of patients in certain difficult situations. But um, that, I think, we're cut above the rest with that one. Mm. Um, and the way we do it in Bristol is is pretty amazing. Got a pretty amazing team. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's something I would boast about quite a lot, actually. Quite right, quite right. That is cool, Charles. That is particularly cool. If you're doing a 14-hour operation, I know these are details, but, you know, do you eat? Do you eat in that time? And do you, I mean, how do you concentrate on something so, you know, intense for all that time? Yeah, so with us, because of all of our training that I talked about earlier, one of the things that you've done a lot of is standing about watching other people do it mm. for absolute ages until you got your turn. Mm. And when you got your turn, you're doing it and doing it and other people are watching you. So you continuously go through this process of 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 endurance. That's I guess it's a fighter pilot mode, if you like. You know, you've got the biggest bladder in the world at that time. You don't seem to feel anything other than the operation that you're doing. Mm. So that's the first thing. Second thing is you have a team of people. So it gives you an opportunity to lift your head up, have a chat somewhere while something else is going on because various other people do parts of the operation. And the 14-hour operations always have a period of hypothermia and so cooling down and rewarming that's a very slow process it's about an hour each way yeah. and when you're doing that bit you're sometimes not working physically you're standing or sitting down or you're not actually intensely going because that's a step that you have to get to so you get a couple of breaks and you can scrub out leaving members of your team in and then you suddenly realize, oh, I need to go to the toilet. And I didn't know I needed to go to the toilet, but I did. Or you didn't go and eat some. So you have three opportunities to junk in that in that, in that that 14-hour operation. One at the sort of start beforehand, you preload. And then uh, whilst you're warming, cooling down, you have second junk break. So that's crisps and something else. And then when you come out, you come and eat another thing afterwards. So you get plenty of opportunities to eat and drink. Um, and it's when people get the dominoes in and you know there, there's a special account for that that operation <laughs> hang on child these heart surgeons eating dominoes and Chris hang this is a scandal but that's a whole nother a whole nother topic and do you when you're when you're doing it and you know you know the relatives are sitting outside again a hugely you know unimaginable sort of anxious time for them do you do you still get nervous now yes always um I think they're just difficult scenarios appear all the time and there are nerve-wracking points in every operation not most routine operations have little nerve-wracking moments um, but I think the more you do the better you get at managing that and that's when I meet when patient when people are in their 50s I think when they're really hitting it out of the park what I mean by that is that I think you're not you're not worried about it anymore as much as you have been before, and therefore it seems to be uh, when you descrub afterwards, it's easier. Mm, mm. Um, so I think it's getting easier and easier to manage the enormity of what you're doing as time goes on, because you've just flown that plane a few times more and you've got more air miles under your belt and therefore you've, you're you sure of your team, you're sure you're going to get off, you're sure you're going to cruise and sure you're going to land mm. safely. And I think that's the, the confidence you get with time mm. and maturity, mm. I think. Mm. Before we move on to the to the next section, I mean, obviously, you like you say, you've got two sons, um, two gorgeous sons. 
what would you say you know would you want them to be a doctor or would you not want them to be a doctor I think I would start from the same position as my parents did, not intending for any of them not to go and become a doctor, but I think it it has to be something that they decide to do by themselves um, because it's the only one thing that they know how to do, perhaps like I did. So I think they have seen what I go through um, and I don't think they see it as a very attractive way to live. Um, And, uh, you know... So I, 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 I always, they obviously admire what I do because it's clear that they talk about it in that way and, you know, that's the way Kate describes it. Um, so, but I don't, I don't think I'd necessarily be influencing them in that direction. But I secretly might want one of them to do it too, you see, <laughs> uh, I think. And I think one of them in particular might be better at one one kind of medicine over another. I can see the trends mm. early. Um, but equally, if they were professional YouTubers, that'd be okay too. Mm. And do you think Kate um, will um, have a quiet word with their wives or potential wives or, you know, on those wedding days? <laughs> I'm sure she'll influence that. I'm sure she'll influence that. So moving on then to, um, to be continued. I mean, God, you're doing so much already, but... Obviously, you you say, you know, you want to really protect the Bristol Heart Institute, don't you, with this work that you're doing now? Yes. So um, I think we want to build the Bristol Heart Institute, which is an amazing facility that was built by patients for patients in the past. You know, it's been 20 years now since it's been a dedicated building. And I think, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a postcode lottery to come to Bristol and have an operation, I think, compared to some other centres around the country. I'm not saying that they're not as good. I'm just saying the facility isn't so well established mm. in the fact that it's a focused hospital in one place that is all heart within the building. Um, and the risk is that pandemic, post-pandemic particularly, that the services are so stretched outside in the general hospital that it could encroach and... Uh, take away some of the facility that was built for heart so you know we we are what i want to do is to make it bigger uh you know i want to build another building on top of it almost um you know i want to attract better surgeons than me and to come through and and uh you know excel more than we have i think that's the only way to do it so we are working on the next succession plan, uh, you know, bo- both physically and on the surgical side. So if I had my way, I'd had five people like me mm. uh, and my next uh, colleague around to 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 run a huge aortic service that will be a flagship center for the country where people would want to come from America and and, and participate in training with us, not just in the UK, maybe Europe as well. So we have big ambitions um, for Bristol to succeed even more. But, I mean, we're already a pretty amazing place, not Mm -hmm. because of one person. It's just the size of the team and the people who'd gone ahead, you know, the people who set it all up was not us. You know, Mm -hmm. they were visionary people. And it's our responsibility, I think, to maintain that identity of Bristol not being just a a hospital with the usual services. It's got a specialist arm to it. Uh, it's got a couple of specialist arm to it, but you know we're definitely one of the special ones from 
looking from inwards out anyway I'm boasting mm. no well quite right you should boast you absolutely should um so moving on to your acknowledgements then well you know surely I mean I'm pretty sure I know who you're going to mention here but you know it is true what what Kate has been through like what your mum did you know to to follow you how she's ha- and I know you know I'm lucky enough to know Kate and I know she has made her own sacrifices hasn't she so that you know that, that must be if somebody's listening to this and even sort of thinking that they you know a family member or they themselves want to sort of go into medicine this is a, this is a real big thing isn't it because it does have such a big impact on all the people around you Yes, I think it's um, it's it's a group effort, definitely. Oh, it's a generational effort. It's a family effort. Uh, there are a number of people as you go along that influence you into that positions. And my mother, I think, is was a big stabilizing force being at home all the time. And my dad working quite hard was a good example. Um, but then you sort of graduate and you become free of that crowd and then they take you your next chapter and then you find somebody else to lean on who give up everything that they know that they do you know kate was a very specialist nurse going in in a, in a going to have a big career who sort of paused it entirely um and traveled around you know it wasn't miserable all the time i mean we were traveling to nice places we lived in good places we had exciting friends and it yeah it was a bit difficult the american adventure was great but you know you had to have that constant stability knowing that someone's got your back and got your kids sorted out your house is moving in the right direction because there's no point going you know just one or the other so i think they have an enormous amount of pride to take in what we all achieve uh without them of course it'll just be um just one person you know trying to do a job but i think it it is a lot better because of the amount of support we have, I have at home from Kate, now the boys, um, my my family in Sri Lanka continue to be quite involved too, but fundamentally. And then there's Kate's parents, you know, who live quite close to us in a little town called Ottery St. Mary nearby with the tar barrels coming up soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they had an enormous part to pay in my early development and encouragement. Um, you know, my Father-in-law, for example, is a sort of a retired head teacher um, who read my thesis when I did my research. He did all my corrections for me and um, was pretty proud. Mm. So yeah, I've got uh, you know that inner circle of uh, people who are looking after me. I mean, fundamentally, it's it's Kate really. Mm. You described her as your only fan and supporter. I'm not sure she's your only fan, Char, but I think she's definitely your biggest fan. Um. Sometimes. Yes, I think so. I mean, it feels like that. I mean, it's the, the unconditional fan, isn't it? You know, when you do well, she's, you know, she's a fan. When you're doing badly, she's a fan. Um, you know, when you've not done it right, she still thinks you're good, you know, and that you don't get unconditionally from anybody else. Uh, maybe my mother would do the same, but she doesn't have so much of a commentary like Kate does. Um, so when I don't get it right first time in operations, it's called girfed, that one, um, <laughs> you have to get up in the middle of the night and disturb the whole family and go. And sometimes you forget your keys to come back into the house at two o'clock in the morning. And then you've got to ring the bell or ring the phone and they've got to get up and come and open the door to you. And then they do that with a smile and then they wake up you the next morning and they sort of see like nothing's changed. It's all just fine. They facilitated your sleep. It seems to be seamlessly the kids have disappeared. You know, everything has just happened 
while heart surgery happened too. And that, I think, only happens when you've got the kind of support structure that I have. Mm. Um, I think I, I, I haven't really talked about um, the, the pivotal role my very professional sister has made in my career. And it starts back when um, I changed the, from my second school to my third school. And I moved cities when my mum moved with me to go and live in an apartment in a different city, leaving my dad and my sister behind. So at that young age, she was a sixth form or two, and she stayed behind and essentially kind of ran the show in the house in that time and kept it afloat till we finished that chapter, if you like, until we both flew away. But she's always been uh, fairly close by and financially um, you know, looking to help if she can. She's the one who saved the money and I was the one who spent the money. You know, that's how it always worked. And, you know, now all these years afterwards, you know, she's um, uh, she takes a huge weight off us because she looks after my mother in, in, in not physically, but in every other way, she's the one who worries is always there. And it takes a huge amount of weight off us because we couldn't carry on with all the things that happen that far away in the world, you know, if, if you don't have these people. So I think, uh, you know, silently, she is a massive Charaja Karuna fan. Um, and if I didn't acknowledge her um, throughout uh, this uh, process, I think it would be um, not, not, I've just left out the, one of the most important parts. Absolutely. Do you think, Char, as well, the fact that obviously everything we've spoken about with your dad, it, it means such a lot to her to see you in medicine as her own dad w was in medicine? Yes, I think it's both of her, her dreams have come true, really. I think she didn't really, she thought that she was going to be the doctor. She was always pretending to be the doctor since she was 13 years of age. And, you know, uh, and she didn't, wasn't her calling. And of course, she, me making it and um, my dad, you know, she's obviously a lot, lot she's a lot more emotional than I am. Um, if you met her and, and you talked to her about my dad, um because you know she she looked after him quite a lot she was very personally connected and affected a lot more without his support as she grew up um and so for me to achieve what i've achieved is is definitely makes her very very proud i think on you know and she's sort of pretending to be my dad sometimes in that in the way she you know she's did some conditional no matter what i say to her how rude i am to her <laughs> she will always turn around and say something nice to me and and be nice to us so she's extremely tolerant of us and our rat race of life with our kids um and of course she adores the rest of my family which you know she's longing to be next to next really Mm, how lovely you are well you also you do make your own luck but you are a very um special family you are um so your advice then char i mean you've been through a you have been through a lot you really have and you've sort of ca you carried on you, from when you, we go back to your beginnings of where it was and and all what you what you've achieved if someone's listening to this i mean god oh, they might think okay perhaps i'm not going to be a heart surgeon but there's something they really want to do there's something they're just like they're sort of terrified to do it or they're not even sure what they want to do what would you say to that person what would be their kind of your advice to them you know to start living a life with so much passion as you do yeah it's um it's a double-edged sword is the first thing to say but i think i would say that being a medical professional is a massive privilege um and to get there is an enormous amount of hard work um but 
um, most people tend to be really lucky when they do the job. So I think if you've got even the slightest inclination that you want to be, become a community service person like this, um, it should be explored. It's the best job in the world. Else, you never get fired <laughs> um, for you know because you vary in your performance, but in the average, it's what's important and. Um, it's a very stable job. You don't get laid off because there are too many of you. It's only the performance side of things and being naughty, you know, which happens in a small number of people. But, you know, it's 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 a very stable vocation to to get into. I think it that I think has to be, and we're lucky in the NHS that it's it's not very fragile like that. So there are plenty of opportunities around the country. Really good medical education in the UK. It's it's just a flagship training bed and for people who are kind of considering it the only way is to experience it and got to give it a go um, you've got to go and see go and try to engage with with uh, universities uh, or school affiliations with hospitals and get some work experience of seeing what's happening get that I think and there are lots of lots of webinar type of things now that we do for to try and attract the next generation we go around schools and we try to get them to come to hospitals and see what it's really not as a heart surgeon necessarily but emergency medicine for example in ed you know how difficult that is as a life and um you know just get a real feel for what it could be like mm. um and and what family life is like we share that quite often we give a full 360 degree appraisal of our own ex uh, being at different stages of our training so if you just put together a program in the morning of from houseman, medical student, what is your life like, houseman, and you have all of those in a room and you present that to people. It's quite a good, insightful way of motivating people to do it. Um, but fundamentally, I think you have to put them in touch with your patients mm -hmm. who then, uh, <laughs> or if they've been a patient before, then that's quite a convincer automatically. But if they see the benefit of, wow, that that is what happened when you did that, that, I think, is the next level of convince, convincing people that they're on the right track. And if you've been through that and you think, I want to do it, you're in the right job. Mm. And, and away from, this is my, my final question, Charles, away from medicine, if someone's thinking, you know, if it's something different, if it's, you know, going into interiors or going into, you know, just something completely different going into, as I know Kate's done, sort of working in her, with her Pilates and, and this, you know, a completely different area. But would you say the same because you know what it's like to work up in something that you're so passionate about do you think it's that applies the same that you should just try it try this area and sort of find out what works for you in that field yeah i do actually um i i think i can't think of any job that you can do without some kind of passion for it or satisfaction that you have to gain in retrospect i mean i know i said at the start that i i wanted to go into medical pharmaceutical and get, <laughs> earn as much money <laughs> But, uh, you know, that's basically, you know, because the salary system's different in that. It's not community service. It's not being a civil servant. And that's what some people do. And that's great. And there is a huge thing to be done there. But the most successful people in that obviously have a very, very deep passion for that job. And, and therefore have gone and tried that vocation, have had an experience of it, had a taste for it you know, in some sort of apprenticeship type of way before they convince themselves so trying it or visiting it or doing an observership 
whatever it takes to get the real feel for it, uh, I, I think it's worthwhile exploring any kind of intention of that nature mm-hmm. um, so that you're convinced about, I think it's doing a job that you want to do and, and you wake up in the morning wanting to do like I did when I wanted to go to school. I think that was, that's it. You want to get up in the morning on the front foot most days and think I'm going to work mm. because that's my job mm. and that's that's the goal mm. Mm. Uh, as a sideshow of that you might earn a lot of money well amazing I mean amazing if that's a, an added bonus I love your final bit of advice you said measure twice cut once which is very useful in heart surgery and barbers is this true measure twice cut once Absolutely. Not- <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think just talk about bridge building or something, you know, uh, same thing with the design of a runway, you know, for a new airport. I mean, if you got those measurements wrong, right, you, you're short or too long by some distance, aren't you? Too long perhaps isn't the problem with the runway. And it's the same thing in most things in life, I think, that have to be measured. Um, it's just a philosophical statement, really. So if I'm going to say something, have I thought that through? And what is the impact of that statement? And did I really mean it? And if I thought it through first, then that's measuring the first time and then saying it the second time. So with heart surgery, you only usually get one go. You can have a second go and then further it goes downhill. And so you have to come back from that. And that's really what resilience is all about in our world. So, yeah, measuring twice and cut once means that you've given it a whole load of thought and the chances of it going wrong are really small. And that, I think, applies to a lot of things. Even writing an email, I think you can do that. Um, so it, it's basically being thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Well, Char, you've been very thoughtful on this. I mean, thank you so much for spending your time, your very, very precious time with this. It's been fascinating. Char Rajakaruna, thank you for being such an amazing guest. Lovely, Ellie Barker. I uh, am ever so grateful for the opportunity. It has been an experience. Um, and yeah, I look forward to future collaborations <laughs> of any sort. Yes, yeah. please. All the best oh. to you and your listeners. Oh. Well, well, well. I mean, I don't know about you, but I got a little emotional with this conversation, I don't mind admitting, to hear what does really happen, what Char and his lovely family go through to save lives in the way he does, really is, well, frankly, beyond words. He knows how precious life is, and as he says, we have to find our passion. So there you go, you see, doctor's orders. Thank you so much to Char for spending your very precious time with me and for answering all my questions in such a thoughtful way. Thank you for being such a brilliant guest. Also, thank you to Abigail Rogers for asking me to interview a surgeon. I do hope you enjoyed it. And if there is anyone you would like me to ask to interview, well, just let me know. I can't promise they'll say yes, but I can promise I will try. Now, you can keep up to date with me at elliebarkerwrites.com. If you could rate and review this episode, that would be marvellous. You're listening to the next chapter by Ellie Barker, a flower pot production. So until next time, keep thinking, keep pondering. What is your passion? Speak soon.